All right. You can go ahead and open to Matthew 26. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in introduction because we've, we're in a transition passage, and so we're going to have to reintroduce it as we go through the verse a little bit, the first verse. But I will tell you, we are nearing the end, Matthew 26. We only have 26, 27, 28, and that's the end of the gospel. Um, in my opinion, is getting this last section has been the hardest so far for me to study and preach because it, the way it's written, it, it's, it's a story without the kind of direct teaching that Jesus has been doing. And it, there's a sense of irony in that we're at the most important part of this whole story, but it's also the most difficult because the goal isn't simply to understand it, right? The goal is for it just to move me. I, uh, the goal here is for me to understand who is this man and what is he doing for, for me? And so um, I, I, I don't know how necessarily always to move us emotionally. It's easier to explain things and to move us emotionally, but what I'm going to do is pray for us that the Holy Spirit will do that for us. That as we look at the very beginning of the end of Jesus' life on this earth, that we will begin to, or, or more so increasingly, fall in love with this man who willingly gave his life for us. Um, so if you will join me, let's, let's just pray to open this service. Dear Lord, we are thankful for the chance to get together and study your word and this week, as, as much as any time that I've been up here, I feel inadequate to cover this text. And I, I don't know that I can explain it correctly. And I pray that you and your sovereign grace will make it so that it's not all about that, but that you, your spirit will move in us beyond explanation into a sense of deep love and appreciation for how big and grand you are and how incredibly much you were willing to give for us. I pray that that will stir us to love you and to um, respond by giving our whole life in offering and worship to you. Pray it in your name. Amen. All right, Matthew 26. Let's just read it together. I'm going to go through verse 16. So let's read it together, and then we'll just unpack it a little bit at a time. Starts in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, 
why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So let's try to organize and think through what is it that we just read, and I think that we can do that by three major movements in here. The first one, just verse 1 and 2, is simply this transition and introduction to the end of the story. So we're going to look at what are the big ideas that he wants us to know as he introduces the end of the book. In the second part, verses 3 through 5, we're going to see this fascinating thing where the Pharisees seem to be in charge of the death of Jesus. They're planning it. The the scribes, the chief priests at Caiaphas, uh, under under the rule of Caiaphas, they're plotting and planning of how they're going to take Jesus out. Uh, The neat thing about this, and we don't find out to the end of the story, but I'm going to give us a spoiler tonight, is that they go through their plans and they try to kill Jesus, but their plans get changed. And the changing of their plans is done, I believe, to prove to us that while they think they're in control, it's really God who's in control. The last thing we're going to see is the anointing at Bethany, this Mary who will break this jar of ointment and pour it over Jesus' head, this costly act of sacrifice as anointing him for his death, and the response of the disciples to say, this is wasteful, and Judas particularly deciding, not only am I upset with the waste of money, he then goes for the gain of his his own money betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And what we'll see there is ultimately two things. One is that Jesus, again, is walking to the cross here. Literally, this is just preparing us for what Jesus is about to do. But two, we're going to see that Jesus is extremely valuable, right? That's what I think this wants us to get, is that the man who is about to die is worth everything. Right, so let's just walk through step by step. And and really, I'm just going to walk through just some bullet points with you. And I just want to start with the first verse, 26.1, when Jesus had finished saying all this. And that sounds like something we've heard five times before, four times before. This would be the fifth one. Because at the end of each major section, remember Matthew had five sections. And at the end of each section, Matthew said something like, when Jesus had finished this sermon, when Jesus had finished these instructions, when Jesus had finished calling his disciples. This time we have that same transition. I'm starting a new section. The only difference is Matthew throws in a new word, all. When Jesus had finished not this teaching, but all of this teaching. And so that tells us Matthew's transition. He's done with his fifth section. But it also tells us Matthew recognizes that he's done with all the setup. All of the stuff that we needed to know to get ready for Jesus, that's done. That we are entering the climax of the story. 
That's really important, especially if you're thinking through literature, because a climax is the most important part of the story. This is huge for thinking through our theology, right? Because so, I think one of the biggest signs of messed up theology is we've taken something that was meant to introduce Jesus and made it our climax and made the climax not a big deal. Let me explain what I mean by this. Um, if you study Protestant liberalism, like German liberal theology, of, of what, is, what do they think is the main point of Jesus and his ministry? They'll often point to the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Jesus' benevolence, his, his care for the poor. And they'll say something to the effect of all religions are basically the same. Jesus is one way showing us how we need to be giving and caring for the poor. Other religions do it in a slightly different way. But Protestant liberalism says that the main idea of the whole Bible is to love your neighbor. They've made the Sermon on the Mount, and I think they've even misunderstood it a little bit, but Jesus' teaching about love your neighbor to be the climax of the story. Now, it's true, Jesus wants us to love our neighbor, but that's not the big deal. That's not the climax of the story. He says, you cannot understand the story of Jesus without understanding the fact that he went to the cross and died and rose again. This is the same thing of any derivate, anytime people mess up their theology, you find out that what's happened is the cross, the death of Jesus, become secondary to whatever their big thing is. People who love, there's people who are uh, giant fans of the Old Testament law. I think Joel and I talked about a friend of his who talked about how the Old Testament law hasn't passed away, and it seems like the major focus is what law should I keep? What law should I do? And should I be worshiping on a Saturday or a Sunday? And it seems like for them, the climax happened in Deuteronomy. The climax of the story was that God gave the law. And Matthew's saying, no, no, the climax is that Jesus came and died. The center of what we believe happens with what we're getting ready to get into. Everything that makes us Christian flows out of the climax of the story that Jesus came and died. So we want to understand that I'm walking into what I think is going to be a difficult passage to explain every detail, but I also believe this is the most important part of Christianity, that there is a God became flesh didn't just live a good example, didn't just live a good life, but he died on the cross. Now, there's two things Jesus wants us to know about that. We find it in verse 2. This is still introduction, and it's going to be fleshed out, but he says there's two major themes Matthew wants us to understand. One is you're not going to understand this death unless you understand, like Jesus said, that it's happening right in line with the Passover, you will not rightly understand the death of Jesus unless you understand that it is connected to the Passover. I'll tell you the second, then I'll go back and explain what I mean by the Passover. The second big thing Jesus wants you to get from the, and Matthew from the rest of the story is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is being handed over. And there's going to be this question as we go through this, who exactly is handing Jesus over? Who's the responsible party for the death of Jesus? Who's the one that gives him over to death? And as Matthew tells us in these next three chapters that Jesus is going to the cross, we're asking ourselves, who's responsible for this? 
And so we have to wrestle with this question, who's handing him over? We're going to deal with that a little bit in our next section, but let me go back and talk a little bit about the Passover. I'm going to assume not some of us are really familiar with the Passover. Some of us may not be. So let me just talk to you for a second about where the Passover happens. And I'm not going to go in tons of detail, but it happens, we find the story of it in the book of Exodus. Right? The people of Israel had become slaves in Egypt, and they want to get free. God raised up Moses as this deliverer, this man who's going to set them free. And that is where we get the story of these ten plagues. The first plague happened, I don't remember each of which is the ten plagues, but each plague happened and Pharaoh says, well, I'm going to let him go. And he changes him, no, nah, I'm not going to let him go. And he keeps changing his mind, changing his mind, until finally we get to the tenth plague. And God says, as the penalty of their rejection of him, he is going to kill the firstborn of everyone. Now, we often think of everyone in Egypt, but that's not exactly the way the story goes. God says, I'm, I'm wiping out the firstborn, whether it's livestock or human. The firstborn is going, but I will pass over, I will spare a select group of people. And it's only the people who do these two things. One is they need to take the blood of a sacrificed animal, this lamb, and they spread it on the doorpost and the lintel, which is kind of the over part of their door. The other thing they do is they take the body of that animal and they have to eat it, right? So they eat this blood and they cover themselves with this blood. And God says, if I see this blood in you and over you, surrounding you and inside of you, then I will tell my angel to pass over you. I will spare you from death. The Israelites obeyed this word. They painted their doorposts. They ate the sacrifice, and God spared them. And every year, from that year on, they were told to redo this festival, to have this festival of slaughtering this lamb as a sign that God had already passed over the death they would have incurred on the basis of this lamb, this, this blood that was covering them. So now we don't know all of how Jesus wants us to understand this, but we just know that Jesus is going to say, you don't understand my death until you understand that it's somehow going to be tied to the death of this lamb. The reason I say this is so hard to preach is because we're going to start seeing it through the next three chapters. This is going to pop up over and over and over. And Jesus wants you to think through, how is he like the Passover? I guess to give some spoilers, right, some, some of the things we'll see is, one, in, in our next story, he's going to ask us to eat this Passover meal, but he's going to say this Passover meal isn't what you have been eating. It's now my body and my blood that is the Passover meal, right? When you ate this meal to remember that God passed over, now when, you, now when we take communion, we're remembering that it's Jesus' broken body and his spilt blood that causes God to pass over us, not to bring the... He says you have to understand that, that what Jesus is doing is an action that is bringing about our pardon, that is bringing about our salvation. This is central to understanding the story of Jesus' death. 
we're going to see that Jesus is going to die substitutionarily. What I mean by that is somebody else was supposed to die, and Jesus stands in their place. They're going to trade out Barabbas. Jesus is going to be the one who dies when somebody else was supposed to die. The same way that this lamb died in place of the people in Israel, that he's being, we're being passed over because Jesus is a substitute for us. So you have to understand that Jesus' death isn't just a historical event. It is tied to, it is a historical event, but it's tied to the, one of the most central Old Testament teachings that our sin has to be paid for by death and can be paid for by the death of another. But again, I'm getting too far ahead, right? That's what we're going to see. So let's, let's slow down. We won't cover that in such, I've already covered it in a lot of detail, but just act surprised next week when we do it again. I told you the other thing in verse 2 that seems to be this big deal, huge, throughout Matthew. Who was handing Jesus over? Who was handing Jesus over? So let's, let's look. Let's go to the next section, and I'm going to read it again, verses 3 through verse 5. The chief priests and the elders of the people, they assemble in the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, And they conspire to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and to kill him. So it seems like who's going to be the responsible party? It's the Jewish leaders. It's the chief priests. It's the elders of the Jewish community that are going to be responsible. And that seems what Matthew's setting up. There's an interesting twist that happens in verse 5. They say... Our only stipulation, our only rule is it cannot happen during the Passover festival. Which as we keep reading, again, I'm just in the introduction. As we keep reading, we're going to find out, wait, that's exactly when it happens. So there's a situation where we're finding out that the the responsible party thinks they're responsible, wants to be responsible for the murder of Jesus. But Jesus says way before they ever started, is going to happen on my terms, not on their terms. Fascinating. Jesus says, it is not even possible that these conspirators can kill me at a time that, other than what I ordained to die. I will die in the Passover. I think this is fascinating because it shows me that this, Matthew's clear the, high pri- the chief priests, the elders, later Judas is going to also be one that hands them over. The people who sin against Christ are, bear the guilt of being hander-overs. You and I, when we sin, we bear that guilt. But what Jesus is showing us right here, right in the beginning of Matthew, is even though we bear that guilt, it never happens that we sin in a way that God says, I'm not in control anymore. That's why in Genesis 50, When Joseph says, you meant this for evil, he can follow that with, but God means it for good. Right? Because you just meant to kill Jesus. God meant for Jesus to be your Passover lamb. You meant to create the worst crime in the history of the world, the murder of the Son of God. God meant to bring the greatest blessing in the history of the world, the salvation of all who will believe. That's a fascinating thing to say about our God. Our God is in such control that he can take the worst evils and make them the greatest goods. How encouraging is that?
one of the things that I appreciate, uh, Marcel, I see you sitting back there a few weeks ago, we had our rows of chairs spread out and we were praying uh, for healing. It was an incredible service. Marcel said, I want to pray for healing, but I also want to pray that her cancer will be used to bring people to the Lord. That is completely in the ability of God to use the evil of cancer for the glory of the Lord. If God can use the murder of his son for the salvation of many, can't he use the affliction of Marcel or any of us for his glory and for his purposes? Shouldn't we believe when he says, I can work all things together for good? All things, even the most evil thing you can imagine, I can work it for good to those who are called according to my purpose. And that takes us through the first five verses. Jesus says, I'm transitioning to the climax of the story. The climax of the story is that people want to kill me and will. But that murder is going to happen on my terms. It will be the Passover in which the sins of many are covered. You won't have to die because Jesus will die in your place. And then it seems like he kind of jumps in time. He takes us back to uh, a time back when he was in Bethany. Like at this beginning of 26, he's in Jerusalem. Now we're going back in time to a time before then when he's in Bethany. Let me read it again, and I'll interrupt myself at times since we've read it once. While Jesus was at Bethany, which I'll pause here, the time that he was at Bethany before was when he was at Laz- came to heal Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were in Bethany. Here he's at the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease. A woman approached him. Let me pause here again. Now, let me just read the whole thing, and I'll come back and resummarize. Otherwise, we'll pause so much, we'll get dizzy, bobbing our heads. Let's just read the whole thing. A woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive, fragrant oil. He's emphasizing the, the cost, the value of this oil. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste? This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, a man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, and from that time he started looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Here's what we know. By taking Matthew and putting it alongside the other Gospels, especially John, one is that also at this house, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Simon were all at this house together. We don't know exactly how they were connected. Some people um, postulate, they, they believe possibly that Simon was 
uh, their father, but we don't know that. Somehow they are connected. We know that the woman who approaches Jesus with an alabaster jar is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And we know that she comes up with this alabaster jar of very expensive oil. Matthew really wants us to get an idea. This is, this is, this is a big deal, very expensive. And different scholars estimate different values, but minimally, the, the lowest number I saw was about a year's wage. So in, in America, American money today, you might think $50,000 worth of oil in this jar. A big deal, right? This is a big deal of what was going on here. And she comes and she breaks it open and pours it on his head. Now, when you read some of the other parallel versions, some say pour it on his head, some say through his beard, some say unto his feet. And all of them seem to be saying the same thing. It, she busted and used it all on his head, through his beard, onto his feet. She covered him. She didn't take a drop of oil and dab it on his head. She busted the jar. She spent it all. She used every little bit of this oil to anoint him. And the disciples were angry. What in the world are you doing? Do you know $50,000? How would you spend that much to dump a bunch of oil on this guy? What are you doing? And I heard somebody say, be honest with yourself, we would probably respond similarly. Right, I kind of wonder what will happen if next church council meeting, I suggest buying a $50,000 bottle of uh, communion juice <laughs> so that we could have a lavish worship service. See, that sounds wasteful. $50,000, a year's wage on one act of worship that it goes on his body and is gone? They're indignant. They're angry with her. Jesus' response, though, is fascinating because he says, what this woman has done is a good thing. It's good for a couple of reasons. One is, it seems that whether she recognizes it or not, she stumbled onto doing an act that is bigger than even the act itself. Right? So what's happened is Mary has anointed him with this oil, and Jesus says, it's because I'm about to die, right? What she is doing is preparing him for his burial. Now, this is well on before he gets buried, but Jesus is already wrapping their minds around the fact that I've come here to die. And Matthew has probably waited to tell us this story until now because Matthew wants us all to be thinking, Jesus is about to die, and what Mary has just done is anointed him in a way that you would anoint a king, right? This is not a pine box funeral. This is a royal sarcophagus type of anointing that's happened. Mary's anointing is good and noble because it's fitting of the one who's about to die. It's not wasteful. He is worthy of this and infinitely more. It's not worthy. She is anointing the king before his burial. 
Jesus says in there, he, he actually quotes from Deuteronomy 15. He says, you're always going to have the poor with you. But I will only be here for a little longer. You will not always have me. And we can misconstrue this to think Jesus is saying the poor are no big deal. Right? And we know that that's not true. One is because of the very fact that he's quoting Deuteronomy 15. Let me, let me actually flip back there so you can get a sense of what Deuteronomy 15 says. Deuteronomy 15.11. He says, For there will never cease to be... This is Moses writing to the people of Israel. Deuteronomy 15.11. There will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brothers in your land. Right? So Jesus quotes the beginning of this verse to say, there's always going to be poor people with you, which would make you think he's going to say, so right on, y'all should be giving this money to the poor people. The fact that he flips it at the end to say, but I won't always be here, is he saying there's something special that's happening right now, something different. You are in the presence of a person who is altogether worthy of something bigger. Saying, I am worthy of being anointed with this oil. Not because he is disparaging of the poor. He's quoting a verse that commands us to give to the poor. But he recognizes that the crux of Christianity is not giving to the poor. The reason we come here is not to love our brothers, is not to take care of our neighbors. We take care of our neighbors because of the reason we came here, which is to honor Christ. Right? So there's an order here. He's saying, you need to understand that Christianity is about me. Now, honoring me will mean loving the people I love. But don't mix up the order. Don't think that our church will be healthy as long as we're ministering to people and meeting needs out there. It's not healthy at all if Christ isn't preeminent. If it's not ultimately about him, you've messed it up. You've messed up the order. People don't seem to buy it, right? His disciples seem to be still frustrated. Um, John tells us, especially Judas, and Matthew tells us in verse 14, particularly Judas responds to this whole event by saying, I'm done with this. I'm done with this wastefulness. And so he goes to the chief priests and he says, what are you willing to give me if I hand them over to you? And they say, how about 30 pieces of silver? And the interesting thing about 30 pieces of silver is that it is the exact amount given in the book of Zechariah chapter 11. And Zechariah 11 has this prophecy, somewhat obscure. It's it's strange about this shepherd who's caring for his people, his his flock, uh, but his flock becomes abused. And so he goes to sell it. This flock has been beaten and abused, and so it only goes for 30 pieces of silver. And he is outraged. He mocks it. He says, oh, this marvelous sum of 30 silver. He said, and then he basically talks about giving over all of the flock to a bad shepherd because they wouldn't give what the flock was worth. My point here is to simply say 
30 pieces of silver is not only bad for the time, that was bad for Zechariah's time in the Old Testament. That was a known paltry sum. And so it seems like Matthew's comparing here. Mary, who thinks Jesus is worth 50 grand of oil that she'll never give back. This is not an investment. This is not, I'm giving him this oil so that I can get 50,000 more back later. She just breaks it, spends it, and it's gone. Judas, on the other hand, is willing to betray his master for 30 pieces of silver. And it seems to me that the question that's kind of lingering is, what is this man's life worth? Who, who exactly is this person about to go to the cross? And how valuable is he? Is he worth 50 grand? Is he worth just 30 pieces of silver? 50 grand, 30 cents. The, the, the answer seems to be, to some degree, you have to determine that in your heart. To Mary, he was worth the most elaborate gift she could find in her house. To Judas, he was worth nothing, 30 pieces of silver. But as we keep reading, we're going to find that regardless of what our own perspectives are, this man is of infinite value. All authority will be given to him, both in heaven and on earth. Even this alabaster jar is worth nothing in comparison to his value. This is, I told you, I think, kind of an awkward sermon to preach because I'm trying to prepare you for a climax that isn't going to be here till next chapter. But I do think that it is pressing us to ask ourselves this question of what is Jesus worth? And I think it's also asking us to evaluate that in terms of our own worship. Mary who gave elaborately, purely for the worship of Jesus. Or, on the, on the other hand, you had Judas, who seemed to use Jesus as a chance to line his own pockets. And when Jesus wasted that opportunity, he was done with Jesus. And so the question seems to be sitting here, what is my worship like? Is it, like, is it like Mary's or is it like Judas's? Do I view my giving to Jesus primarily as a good investment? And this is tricky for Christians because we do know that over and over Jesus gives to those who, are, to those who give, right? That those who are faithful get a return. We're asked to test him and uh, Malachi. But there seems to be a sense here that as I look through this, that that return is not the motive of our giving. The motive of our giving is simply, he's worth it. He's worth it. If I gave every penny I had and didn't get a penny back, he was worth it. He was worth it. But he does promise, even I think back to Matthew 13, 
of the kingdom, uh, the, the parable of the, the lost treasure. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this treasure. You find it, and a man finds it in this field. And he goes and he sells everything he had with joy, pumped, it, just super excited to sell everything he has so he can buy this field. Because he knows that's where the treasure is. So there's this wrestling in our souls. Do I love Jesus for who he is or for what he can give me? But he promises, if you love me for who I am, you get the kingdom. You get it all. And so we wrestle with it. As a close... I just want to ask us to reflect on a couple things. There, there may be something in here that has stuck out to you. Um, I want to just tell you a couple things that have really stuck out to me, and then I'm going to ask us all to respond. One of my favorite things about this passage is that I see already, as people are conspiring against Jesus, that their plans are under his plans. That just makes me excited, especially in a church that, in all honesty, it feels like we're under attack in so many ways. When I see so many people who are sick and broken in ways, it is an incredible encouragement to know that God is still in control. The same is for our country. Right? Regardless of who wins the election, God says, I do not think that the plans of men subvert the plans of God. Just don't worry about this. God is in control. No plan of man can subvert the plan of God. I'm thankful for that because I know that God has promised that he will bring all things to good for those who are called according to his purpose. The second thing I want to focus on, in part in light of how good he is and how powerful and sovereign he is, I want to focus on the fact that he is valuable. I want to ask myself, am I satisfied in him? I'm going to pray before I pray to close this, and the music team leads us in response. Let me just close by reading one of my favorite psalms, the very end, actually, of Psalm 73. And I read this simply to reemphasize the value of Jesus. Psalm 73 is written by Asaph. He's jealous because he sees people getting rich, though they're bad. He wants to know, how come I'm trying to do good and I'm not getting rich? And then he meets God. He says, and I stepped into God's sanctuary, and his whole perspective changes. And at the end of that, he says this, Who do I have in heaven but you? On earth there is nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. But as for me, which is those far from, from God will perish. Uh, God will destroy all those unfaithful to him. He says, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Let me pray and we'll, we'll move into a time of response. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word.